welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 150th episode, our returning guest is Sarah Kenzier. You first heard Sarah Kenzier on episode 70, 80, 89, 99, 112, 128, and 138. Sarah Kenzier is best known for her reporting on St. Louis, her coverage of the 2016 election, and her academic research on authoritarian states. She is currently an op-ed columnist for the Globe and Mail, and she was named by Foreign Policy as one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events. Her reporting has been featured in many publications, including Politico, Slate, The Atlantic, Fast Company, The Chicago Tribune, Teen Vogue, and The New York Times. Her book, The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America, was published April 17, 2018, and is now a New York Times bestseller. You can listen to her podcast, which she co-hosts with Andrea Chalupa, Gaslit Nation. And now on to the show. I'm really excited that you're back. Uh, there's obviously been a lot going on, and and yeah, yeah. heard train and impeachment. I was like, I, I got to talk to Sarah. She, <laughs> she's yeah. Right now, she's been talking about this stuff a lot, uh, and for a long time, and and people are just now catching up. So. Uh, everyone who needs to get educated should go, definitely go back and at least listen to the first couple episodes of Gaslit Nation to get ca- caught up. Um, I want everyone is just finding out about right now, right? I mean, you guys have been talking about this forever. Oh, yeah. It's been three years. And honestly, they can go back and listen to your show when I was first on, I think, in 2017 and listen to a far less exhausted version of me explaining probably the same things that sure, I'm going to explain yet I'm again. To listen to my podcast, too. <laughs> Let's not forget. Um, but yeah, definitely. Um, so, yes, impeachment is here. We've been talking about it for a very long time since the first time I think we, we talked. Um, so, and I know from, you know, previous conversations, you've been hot and cold on Nancy Pelosi, as have I. You know, first, it, she's she stared Trump down and won the government shutdown thing. I was like, yes, okay, that's what we need to see. That That's the spirit. And then she dithered on impeachment and, you know, tapped the brakes and tried to quell the, you know, uh, frankly, the people of color, let's just say it, who've, mm-hmm. been, who've, been, who've been pointing this out forever. And, and, and I don't understand why we're focusing on these few people in the middle, uh, uh, whatever. That's that's a different subject. But anyway, uh, you know, I, I just I don't trust it yet. You know, I've been hurt too many times with 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 the Democrats and I, I want I want this to work. But like first Mueller was a big disappointment. I, I had a lot of faith in that and that kind of all, you know, how that went. And what do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I'm very wary, especially because, you know, they're not making progress. They don't seem to have had backup plans for anything. You know, all of this, um, you know, the crime, the corruption, the obstruction that the Trump administration has been committing has been continuous and it's been obvious the entire time. So when they do things like not answer a subpoena, you need to have some kind of backup plan. And when the Mueller probe is clearly failing, as was obvious by early 2018, they should have had a backup plan. And then, you know, once they got actual power, once they got power of the House, they should have immediately proceeded with impeachment. You know, back then I was saying, if you don't have impeachment hearings, you're going to end up with show trials. You're going to end up with the GOP 
uh, not only abusing power in practice, but also rewriting the narrative, controlling the rhetoric and flipping the script, you know, making the investigators the investigated, making the victims the abusers. And that's exactly what they're doing. And imagine if at this point, you know, in uh, early October, we are in like our six month of impeachment hearings and all of this crime and corruption um, that was allegedly revealed as a revelation over the weekend. Although, uh, honestly, we talked about it in Gaslit Nation for about five months. Nonetheless, um, imagine that that was already in people's minds. Imagine that the American public, you know, Watergate style, had had continual exposure to hearings that, you know, showcased these crimes. Uh, we'd be in a much better place. And yes, um, it is race based. I don't know why Pelosi is splitting the Democratic base. I don't know why she targeted uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and especially Rashida Tlaib. Um, who is a leader in impeachment. You know, she's known for saying impeach the motherfucker. But, you know, what she did uh, is far more than that. She wrote articles. She brought forward, I think, the biggest petition in American history, 10 million signatures calling for impeachment. She did concrete things and she was backed by older representatives, also of color, uh, Maxine Waters, Al Green, who had been pushing for impeachment since 2017. And so we could have gone in as a full force, you know, I mean, and hopefully Republicans, people like Justin Amash and others would have joined in um, to just have accountability, to have justice, to have clarity for the American public, because everyone deserves that. And it doesn't matter if they voted for a Democrat or Republican. It doesn't matter if they voted for Trump. The Trump voters deserve the truth, just like everybody else does. And I have no idea why she did what she did. And I don't uh, trust her anymore. I'm obviously glad um, that she finally turned the corner on impeachment. Uh, but as I was trying to figure out why she was doing all this, I basically vetted Pelosi and kind of realized she hadn't been vetted in a long time, I guess, because she'd just been in office for so long that people took for granted um, that she was a reliable Democratic leader. Found all this terrible stuff, uh, just consistent patterns of behavior. I mean, nothing like Trump level, nothing that bad. Uh, but concerning to me, I don't think she's the right person for this role. Uh, she is what we have, though. So hopefully she'll make the right decisions going forward. Mm -hmm. Well, and it makes, you know, the timing of it makes it seem like, you know, and they are focusing very solely on this Ukraine thing. But, you know, it's just like there's so much like why why this why is this the, like yes he he sold our country out yeah i know we've been saying this for a that's long like time how like, he got into office that's what i don't operandi. understand yeah like this is this is how he got in in 2016 he conspired with a foreign power to subvert an election and smear his opponent like literally the same thing and that is why we had the Mueller report you know which mostly ended up being an obstruction probe an obstruction into the investigation that um you know comey and others were doing into russian interference in the election and in the administration itself and so we knew all this the fact that people are running around acting like this is some new thing that trump came up with or that wow i just realized bill barr is dirty i'm like oh my god people like why do you think he was hired like back in even 1992 you know conservatives were saying that bill barr was too much that he was like the cover-up general that he was like the dude that you know dirty republicans call and they want their you know bad business swept under the rug like we all knew this and it is so weird for me to see this complete historical revisionism and also all these other crimes you know uh two years of, of administrative crimes including things like abuse 
abuse of migrants, which I do think is very serious. And if you deem that not impeachable, which Pelosi has, like, what are you saying exactly? Like, what are you saying about Central American migrants? What are you saying about Latino people in general? Like, I have some questions um, about her stances on that and other people's stances. But yeah, it is weird that they're going with a Ukraine crime. And also that what the whistleblower said, um, you know, seems completely accurate to me, in part because it was already in the public domain as early as April and May. Like we did whole Gaslit Nation episodes on the whistleblower's, you know, secret complaint, which is just basically, you know, multiple people from the administration, from the inside, backing up what appeared to be happening. You know, what you can kind of discern from reading, um, you know, Ukrainian, Russian and, and American media. Uh, but, you know, we all knew this. So, yeah, I also find it weird. It's like they decided, OK, now is impeachment time. Let's find a crime. OK, whistleblower. Whistleblower is good. And I don't know whether it has to do with Biden. Um, I'm not quite sure what their logic is, but I think it's a mistake to not look at the pattern because the pattern of criminality is what's important because it is so consistent and it goes back so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you pointed out, uh, I saw on Twitter that you could just have a impeachment a day calendar and just pick, you know, a new one every single day. Um, and, you know, I, I think it would have been maybe smarter to make it more varied, make it last longer, make Republicans answer for each count. You know what I mean? Like doing mm-hmm. doing this one, focusing on this one thing and they're like, oh, well, I guess that didn't work. What's well, like, all right, just send them the next one. What's the, what do you think about this? You have this, this, what about this? You know, just yeah. making them take that vote. And if they don't like it, they maybe they should get rid of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so. I don't know what could be more important. I mean, they have not been able to pass any kind of legislative agenda. Like the Democrats haven't been able to because McConnell just, you know, stamps everything down. Nothing gets through. So you might as well have the these hearings, um, you know, where you bring all of the criminality and the corruption of this administration to the fore, uh, you know, so Americans know what their government is doing so they can make an informed decision next time they vote. And because the crimes are very serious, you know, they've cost human life, they've caused human suffering, like that's all worth talking about. And it's weird to me that they seem to want to rush the impeachment vote. You know, I always thought the value of impeachment lay much more in the hearings because the Republicans are so unlikely to convict in the Senate, but it allowed the Democrats the opportunity to have this sort of like OJ style free for all trial spectacle, which honestly, if you want to compete with Trump and get to him and like play on that field, but without all the lying and brutality and and shitty stuff he does, you know, that's the way to do it is to have a big public spectacle of justice and accountability. I don't know why they gave up that opportunity and why they seem to be rushing it now, because what I worry is, you know, okay, they'll vote to impeach him. That won't, it'll sort of mean something to Trump. You know, I mean, he won't like having that asterisk. He won't like having that bad mark. It's not going to be enough to make him resign, I don't think, or or step down. I also am very skeptical that the Republicans would convict. And even if they convict, I kind of doubt he will leave. You know, they are operating completely above the law. And it was obvious that that's going to be the way that they would behave the whole time, which is why it was so important to do this early. I mean, a very cynical part of me, wonders did they decide to do it now because they knew it was too late and if so like why like what exactly is the objective here i there's a lot about this that i i don't quite understand because it just doesn't make sense pragmatically it doesn't make sense morally it doesn't make sense um legally you know even from the democratic side from the side where you actually expect those uh things to happen you know i think Mm -hmm. we've given up on the republicans um so yeah i've got questions 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I never got the, I mean, I know we've talked about this before, but the whole wait till 2020 crowd, it's like, you're assuming that we have free and fair elections and we have 2020, and I haven't seen any evidence that we've done anything to address what happened last time. And it's, it you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, there's, it's, why, it's is that even a possibility worse. at this point? Like, <laughs> well, that's what's so weird is that the Pelosi crowd is very adamant, you know, we'll impeach him at the ballot box. They kept saying that, or he'll self-impeach, or, you know, all these nonsense. <laughs> but, but Pelosi herself admitted um, that our elections are not secure, which is true. They haven't been secure the entire time. Of course, this Ukraine situation in which, you know, Trump is doing a, a quid pro quo for election interference against a potential presidential rival, you know, obviously shows there's foreign interference in our elections. There's likely foreign interference from, you know, multiple states that Trump has had relationships with, you know, including obviously Russia, but also Saudi Arabia and Israel. Uh, There's also, you know, insecure voting machines themselves and the companies that own them, which are linked to members of the Trump administration. Jenny Cohn is somebody, um, you know, who studied that in great detail. We have domestic voter suppression, voter ID laws, uh, racist discrimination, voter intimidation, you know, all these things add up to an insecure election. So obviously waiting till 2020 as some sort of, um, you know, we're just going to vote them out is not a great plan, even though, honestly, I think if there were a free and fair election, I do think he would be voted out because he's extremely unpopular. And I think he'd lose to basically all of the Democrats. It doesn't even matter which one. Um, But, you know, it just seemed like they were playing with our lives, like playing politics in a time of crisis, you know, in a time where we're facing, I think, you know, the most serious national security concerns of my lifetime, I think possibly in American history, and also a significant public safety threat coming at us from a number of levels. Like, this is not the time to be cavalier or flip or even hopeful. You know, if you're in charge, if you're actually in a position of power, you should not just be sitting around hoping that things work out. You should be actively making them work out because it's your literal job. And I don't like seeing all these representatives get on Twitter and bitch and moan with the rest of us. Like they're just regular old civilians suffering through this. I'm like, this is your job. You know, I don't like being the person who has to write to a senator and explain who various members of the Russian mafia are because they're behaving as if they don't know. And maybe they do know and they just don't want to like break that news to the American public. Um, And maybe I'm being annoying by doing that, but I feel like they need to be doing that. They need to be clarifying uh, the situation in the most stark terms possible, even if it scares the shit out of people, because it is scary and people have the right to know. Well, the good news is that Mitt Romney Romney is at threat level uh, concerned, bordering on trouble. (laughs) So uh, we've got that going for us. (laughs) They're always deeply Um, concerned. Deeply concerned is the new thoughts and prayers, you know, (laughs) they don't do anything. (laughs) Exactly. But I love how we're just, you know, not us, but the Republicans uh, and anyone in Trump circle that's like going on TV these days still uh, is like they're, they're so good at moving the goalposts just that's that's what they do. I like uh, it's amazing that, you know, Mueller was trying to prove or not prove whether or not there was collusion or not collusion, but coordination or conspiracy. And then just he the thing that he releases has the it's that that's that it's happening. He's saying it right there. And now they're saying, oh, but no quid pro quo. It's like, first of all, yes, 
Second of all, we just spent two years talking about whether or not this happened, and he it just it, he said it. He admitted it. The thing he really said it. So why yeah. are we really talking about? It? There's no nothing else to talk about. That's still illegal. You can't have your Justice Department prosecute your political rivals. You definitely can't have a foreign government prosecute your political rivals. What are you talking about? <laughs> right, exactly. And it's so predictable that they're going to act that way because that's how this group of people, you know, Trump and then like, you know, the Roger Stone school of politics and Bill Barr and Pompeo is how they've behaved their entire lives. So you know they're going to come out and they're going to lie and they're going to fabricate new standards and they're going to invent new laws because that's honestly their key strategy. It's not that they don't know right from wrong. I'm so tired of, of seeing people say that. They know right from wrong and they don't care because they want to change what the definition of wrong is. They want to make it, you know, in Trump's case, he wants to personalize it. Like, if I did it, if I, Donald Trump, did it, it's right. Um, you know, if you did it, it's wrong. Like, that's that's the definition. There's no objective truth anymore. And they want to do the same with law. And that's a much more concerning thing because they have the power in the executive branch and through the Supreme Court to rewrite the law uh, to exonerate themselves and and, you know, even worse, I think, uh, to target innocent people as their victims. I think that that's where we're heading now. And this was all very, very obvious. Um, you know, so many people cut Mueller so much slack when he did such an abysmal job. You know, he did not investigate this with urgency. He did not present his results clearly. He did not give uh, the recommendation that I think would have been like the necessary kick in the ass for, for Pelosi and others who did not want to go forward with impeachment. You know, if he had just flat out said that, yes, balls in your court now, you need to impeach. I think there would have been far more pressure because the American public wouldn't have been parsing his words, trying to figure out, well, what what is this guy trying to say? What's he recommending that we do? Is this urgent? You know, he seems kind of out of it and sleepy, like he doesn't seem all that uh, distressed. You know, people respond to that. They respond to emotional cues. And the Republicans are very good at that. You know, they're very good at making like Bill Clinton getting a blowjob in the White House seeming like a giant national security crisis because of the urgency about which they, you know, they spoke about it. And the American public didn't really fall for that. Um, you know, Clinton's approval rating stayed pretty high. But I think this kind of cavalier, lackadaisical, let's kick back kind of attitude um, that Pelosi and some of the other representatives have exhibited is harmful. And by comparison, the urgency that AOC and Maxine Waters um, and, you know, Ted Lieu and, and Brian Schatz and others who have been very consistent uh, in their condemnation of corruption in this administration and Elizabeth Warren, too, I think that really resonates with people because it makes them say, OK, this is really bad. This is incredibly unusual. This is very dangerous. And these people are actually looking out. And I think folks appreciate that. And I don't understand why the Democrats as a whole, um, and also people in the intelligence community for that matter, although they're obviously more limited in what they can say publicly, why they have not been responding with this level of publicly stated urgency for the last three years. And I mean, I don't know, I always get all this shit, like people are like, in the beginning anyway, oh, you're an alarmist, oh, you're hysterical, oh, you have no faith in institutions. And I'm like, okay, the last one's true, but the others are not. You know, I'm <laughs> on the money. I have studied this for a long time. I know what's happening. I know what I'm talking about. And it's like so many people were afraid of just being labeled something bad or laughed at or scorned or whatever. And I'm like, you know, none of that matters when you lose your country. Like when you lose your country and you lose your freedom, you're not going to be thinking, oh, thank God no one laughed at me before when I was right and they were wrong. Like you're going to be upset that you're losing your country. And I, I don't know. It's so weird to me that people are sort of stuck in this like 
seventh grade mindset, you know, like people picking on me, that's the worst thing that can happen. I don't know. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's like uh, Timothy Snyder says, don't, don't obey in advance, you know? Yes, exactly. Right. And that's the other thing is that there have been multiple best-selling books that have documented this entire crisis allegedly revealed by the whistleblower. Timothy Snyder wrote one of them. Malcolm Nance wrote one. Craig Unger wrote one. David K. Johnson wrote one. I wrote one that's coming out in April called Hiding in Plain Sight. But it's, you know, basically full of information I've been saying for the last three years. And like, all this is out there. Like all Mueller and the rest of them needed was like a library card and like the internet. Like that's all the Democrats need because they're constantly confessing their crimes and they're constantly breaking the law. Like this is super not hard to figure out. And so that kind of boggles the mind as well. Uh huh. Well, speaking of hard to figure out, uh, I was listening to Devin Nunez talk, unfortunately, the other day. And uh, he mentioned your co-host, Andrea Chalupa's sister. Now, I I, I haven't taken the time to figure out what his theory of the case is exactly. I couldn't really get it. Like, somehow he thinks that, what, Ukraine's conspired with Hillary Clinton to lose i don't i don't know what his his point is but what what is he saying and what you know i've, I've heard the you know, obviously gaslit nation episodes about this but just could you summarize what the actual story is sure um so alexandra chalupa is the older sister of my gaslit nation co-host andrea uh sometimes people get them mixed up she used to work uh for the dnc as a researcher um in 2016 she she was not working for them as a researcher but became alarmed when manafort uh began managing trump's presidential campaign because she knew all about manafort from having studied ukraine for such a long time and knowing about you know manafort's dirty deals and mafia connections in that part of the world. And she also, you know, was aware that Trump had illicit ties to the Kremlin, because as I said, the stuff was in the public domain, like it had been, you know, covered, not thoroughly, but covered somewhat uh, for decades. And so she was alarmed. Um, You know, she took the information she had, I think, to the DNC and the FBI. Uh, We did an interview with her on Gaslit Nation. It's just called the Alexandra Chalupa interview. So people should, should double check those facts there. Um, and then, you know, tried to just choose the whistleblower. She was the whistleblower in the room for Paul Manafort and the danger he posed. She was completely vindicated uh, by his arrest and by the revelations about, you know, his lifetime of dirty dealings. But what the Republicans have been trying to do since about 2017, basically at the point, you know, there's a point where they were like, I have nothing to do with Russia. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, we have nothing to do with the Kremlin. They couldn't deny that anymore because too much stuff had come out. Like Don Jr.'s emails had come out. Trump's own, um, you know, basically placating Putin in public and sucking up to him uh, publicly had come out. Stuff about, you know, Manafort and Felix Sater and Michael Cohen and all these related characters had come out. So they switched it. They decided okay, well, we're just going to build our own counter narrative, our own propaganda. And it's going to be like, it wasn't the Republicans with Russia. It was the Democrats with Ukraine. And the closest they could come up to anybody who was like researching the Trump campaign, uh, you know, with, I mean, what it was, is national security concerns in mind. They're trying to make it seem partisan was Alexandra Chalupa raising the alarm about Paul Manafort. None of this has stuck, but they have tried in so many ways to go after. It's like WikiLeaks targeted her, Sean Hannity targeted her, Giuliani, Whitaker, um, I think RT, Nunes. Like we, we've gone through uh, the number of people. And Ali, you know, Alexandra is just 
a normal person. She's like a mom of three kids, just like trying to live her life. And every now and again, she gets like a little alert on her phone. And she's like, wow, you know, Putin's chief propagandist just tweeted about me. That's great. So it's like, it's very scary. You know, she's gone through a lot of threats. She's had people stalk her in real life. She's had people hacking her computer. Um, you know, she's had to go to the police multiple times. It's it's very frightening. And that's one of the reasons that Andrea and I are, are always so angry on our show is we've seen the real human toll of this administration close up. And we know that there's no one we can go to because there's like everybody is compromised or they're a coward. And so if we're like, hey, um, you know, we're being stalked or threatened by this administration. We're being stalked and threatened by our own government. We know basically there's no one who was brave enough to want to protect us. I mean, maybe at this point, because everything we said has been vindicated. But even then, I don't know. Um, and that's a really disturbing thing. That's a situation that friends of mine who live in authoritarian or semi-authoritarian states and work as journalists uh, covering corruption, that's a situation that I've heard them talk about so many times. And it is surreal uh, that we are to some degree in that situation ourselves. Not nearly as bad, um, but it could be. And it's definitely heading that way. And if the Republicans and basically this mafia syndicate gets its way, um, I, I don't know what will happen to us. Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, and I don't even think they're like, it's just like, like you said, Sean Hannity says these things and then they just, they repeat it. I mean, they don't even like think if it's true. It's just like, this is what the line, this is what the talking points are today. And this is the character in this story. So just memorize it. And <laughs> this is, this is what we're going to go with. Memorize it. I mean, they get Alexandra and Andrea mixed up all the time. They have her as a Ukrainian, whereas she's actually from California. I mean, it's just, you know, but yeah, it's just, it's a bunch of talking points. And then they just have their little bot army and their bot brained army, just recite the talking points over and over and just hope that something sticks. And I think so far, because there just isn't anything tethered to reality at all here, it's like very easy to debunk. This hasn't stuck, but I think they're trying really hard with Hunter Biden and more prominent people. You know, like nobody knows who Andrea's sister is. Like no normal person knows this, you know, no offense to Andrea's sister. But people know, you know, who, who Joe Biden is. They know who Hunter Biden is. And so maybe they're hoping people might care more about that one. Um, but, uh, you know, none of it actually holds up in terms of uh, facts and facts still matter, contrary to what they claim. Mm -hmm. It's also amazing because I, I really don't think that Joe Biden is going to be the nominee. I just don't feel like that's going to happen. So it's it's kind of funny that it, if this do, is what ends up taking him down, that like he was focusing on Joe Biden. And I just don't feel like Joe Biden's got the same power. <laughs> like I feel like somebody's no. going to overtake him. Yeah, I feel not, the same way. He was already <laughs> going down the polls. I never thought he was going to be the nominee. If the Trump campaign thought he was, I mean, honestly, that's a rare misstep for them in terms of strategizing. I don't want to sound like I'm praising them, but they do have this ability to like think many moves ahead. Um, and they've been, you know, fairly good at doing that, at, at anticipating who may stop them, who may, uh, you know, prove to be some kind of opposition getting rid of them. That's why they purged, for example, the FBI of all of its Russian mafia specialists. I think that's why they got Mueller in particular to run that probe. You know, they, they thought this through. And I think, I guess they thought that Joe Biden would be the nominee and they could just do a replay of the exact same playbook that they used in 2016 on Hillary Clinton, um, you know, where they, they use a foreign opponent to smear him. I, I, I think it's going to be Warren. I mean, what I've been thinking all along 
is that Warren is going to slowly and steadily rise and gain ground. And Biden and Bernie are both going to drop. And that is what's been happening so far. And I think she's picking up, you know, their voters. I think once, um, you know, Buttigieg and, and Beto and uh, some of the other, you know, lower polling candidates are out, I think she's likely to take uh, the people who wanted them as well. I think she's the most likely nominee at this point. And I don't know exactly what the Trump team will do because they've tried uh, the Native American thing. It didn't it didn't work. I mean, it, it did briefly, but it, it doesn't have staying power. And her entire platform is based around corruption. And she has a very deep understanding of financial corruption in America. She also understands how that corruption is related to foreign policy. And while she's not exactly talking about, you know, transnational organized crime in those exact words and phrases, she does seem to have a grasp of the subject matter and what needs to be done to root this out. And so she's an actual formidable person for them. And I think they're going to do everything possible. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about what they may try to do to her. I'm also kind of excited because I never thought we'd get a quality candidate that actually would give our country half a chance of uh, combating these guys if by some miracle we have free and fair election and she wins it. Uh, but I think she actually could start that long process of, uh, you know, getting us back on track. And I mean, it's going to be a long process. It's going to go way beyond her term if, if she actually gets it. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that she has adequately addressed the Native American thing? I think she's tried to. I mean, I certainly think she's made like a repeated, consistent, good faith effort to. I think she's listened to the criticisms, especially from Native Americans. I think she's designed policy initiatives that benefit Native American communities. You know, I think she feels bad about what she did. She knows it was wrong. Um, And I think she's at this point, it's like, you know, people will choose whether or not to forgive her. And if they are Native American and they're deeply offended by what she did, I'm certainly not going to say like, no, you need to forgive her. And I don't think she's saying that either. Um, I think she's done the, the best she could about a stupid thing she did, you know, 30 years, 30 or 35 years ago. And I, I don't know what more she can do from there. So we'll see. But it's like, I, I think Trump, you know, he focuses on it in part because it's this whole sort of triggering affirmative action linked uh, boogeyman, you know, for the right wing, although it wasn't that, like, it's not what got her in, but also because he hates Native Americans. I mean, he's constantly denigrating Native Americans. He's taking their land. He took, um, you know, land, federal Native American secret sites in, in Utah and wants to drill on it. Um, you know, he, he, he's had beefs with like, you know, Native American casinos going all the way back to like the early nineties and was making disparaging remarks on, you know, tribal appearances. Like he hates Native Americans. So he's also pushing that button the same way he does with every, you know, racist and xenophobic comment that he made. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying Elizabeth Warren is Native American in that way, by the way, but I'm saying it may appeal to him to sort of try to portray her as one because he's hoping his fan base, uh, you know, she has the same sentiments. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, so I feel like every time we talk, we always end up talking about the New York Times somehow. <laughs> but um, I, I was actually flabbergasted by this. Okay, so the LA Times obtains audio of Trump saying in a secret meeting, basically saying that they should be killed, right? This is this whistleblower. And mm-hmm. then just Hours later, the New York Times comes out with a story with identifying details, which I'm not going to repeat here, about the whistleblower. And it's like, what? 
Okay, we still don't know who that op-ed writer is that wrote in the New York Times, by the way, a year later. So I don't know what the rush is to like unmask this person, but whatever. But what what are you thinking? It's like you're going to get this person killed, and there's really yes. no reason to report that you can report what they said they, they left a very detailed message for you to report on report on that they left a 10-page document very very detailed full of full of things you could follow up on why are you so concerned with them that is not what you f- should be focusing on right now even if you know that as a reporter i don't think you should should reveal it not at this moment yeah exactly i mean the new york times is highbrow breitbart they are no different in my mind than fox news or breitbart or any kind of overtly right-wing propaganda arm of the white house you know occasionally they do a few articles on climate change or the 1619 project something like that as an attempt to kind of counterbalance the constant you know xenophobic propagandistic crap that they churn out you know the same day that they tried to get the whistleblower were killed that morning, they had published an article on six quote unquote swing voters um, that were, you know, loving Trump, just so into Trump. It turns out they're all GOP operatives, you know, one of whom had written a book about Trump, had seen Trump in person 23 times and had been interviewed in other New York Times articles. They just interview the same little group of Trump voters over and over. And then they say it's a mass movement. You know, and this goes this kind of tactic goes all the way back to when they literally partnered uh, with Steve Bannon to run Clinton Cash, which was, uh, you know, a propaganda book that had no basis in reality. Uh, the obsessive focus on the emails, their constant lying about Trump, Russia and the FBI, you know, the notorious headline like investigating um, you know, Trump, uh, FBI finds no link between Trump and Russia that they ran right before the election. They then fired the public editor who pointed out that they had lied to the public. Like, I mean, the track record is so long. They are in Trump's corner. They've got people like Ken Vogel um, who are just putting out uh, propaganda uh, to help the administration. And people should not be subscribing to them. No one should be paying for that. I'm not saying, you know, censor the times, go burn down the building. I'm saying just don't give that money. Like, would you give your money to Fox News? Would you give your money to Breitbart? Like, Probably not. The New York Times is the same thing. And this is incredibly dangerous, what they're doing uh, or what they tried to do to the whistleblower. And I was glad to see that people realized, you know, how dangerous this is because they don't have standards. I mean, even today, two of their reporters, um, you know, just revealed that Trump had wanted to have migrants shot uh, and killed, you know, crossing the border. And then when he found out that that couldn't be done, he just wanted them shot. He also wanted moats filled with alligators and snakes. The New York Times has known this for a long time and decided to withhold that information uh, for book sales. And I'm just like, you know, if if you're a migrant or if you are an American and you've got family in Latin America, you know, maybe in like Honduras or something that, that are thinking of coming here, maybe they're not going to come, you know, through the regular channels. Like, don't you want that out? Isn't this a public safety issue? Isn't the fact that the president is a freaking sadistic maniac a public safety issue? Like, wouldn't you want to tell people all this as soon as you can? And they'll withhold that, but they won't withhold the whistleblower's identity. I mean, that's bizarre. It's like, are you trying to get the maximum number of people killed? Because that's kind of what it seems like they're doing. And there's a steadiness to it, a sickness to it, where it's always, um, you know, either ethnic minorities or people like in the, um, you know, intelligence agencies that are, are trying to blow the whistle on Trump. Those are like the two most targeted parties by The New York Times. And that's very disturbing. And I don't completely understand what's behind it, but it's corporate 
culture. It's top down. I don't think it's something that um, reporters are even doing voluntarily. In fact, we know in some cases it's not because they've quit in disgust because uh, they don't want to deal with this this terrible newspaper anymore. Even though it's allegedly so prestigious, they'd rather be somewhere where they could like sleep with a clean conscience. And so, you know, all, all of the credit to them for that. But yeah, uh, don't read the New York Times, people. <laughs> it's bad. But but of course, uh, journalism that you oh, yes. do appreciate, of course. Oh yeah, <laughs> put that money to your local paper. You know, the local paper that hasn't had any money for like you know twenty years. Put that money to independent journalists. You know, uh, even like the the biggest rivals of the, of the New York Times, like the the Washington Post, the LA Times, like they don't do things like this. Like no one else is doing this weird stuff at this level. Like every paper makes mistakes. Every paper runs a few bad stories, or even makes you know a major mistake on occasion. The New York Times is like the Trump of papers. It like makes a major mistake every single day. So like, don't back that up. Like there are alternatives and you're not going to miss anything. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I was also thinking about that tweet they had the other day about Brett Kavanaugh, where it was like, <laughs> Having a penis thrust in your face at a drunken dorm party may seem like harmless fun. Wait, no, no, that doesn't seem like harmless fun. That that yeah. may be fun to you, but it's definitely not harmless. <laughs> There's something really wrong with them. And then everyone was like, oh, gosh, you know, well, there are these wonderful female reporters who reported that story. And I guess like some idiot intern just you know tweeted that out. Nope, it was the female reporters who are friends of Brett Kavanaugh. It's some woman who like went to Yale, um, you know, with Kavanaugh and was in his class and that's why she's writing this story basically to defend him she went on like the view the next day and defended him and that's their culture they probably do think that that's fun and you know she was saying some really disturbing things she was like um you know the woman who who they didn't actually interview but the one that that Kavanaugh um assaulted not Christine Blasey Ford but the other woman they were like oh she just couldn't handle it because she was Catholic and I'm like what in God's name is wrong with you like what are you saying here like this is offensive on so many levels like this is offensive to victims of sexual assault this is offensive offensive to Catholics this is offensive to just to journalists, it's offensive to just anyone with like a baseline level of morality or normal human interaction. Um, so I don't know, but there's something deeply wrong there, obviously. Mm -hmm. Well, and speaking of Kavanaugh and also speaking of, you know, moving the goalposts, uh, you know, I always thought that, you know, this hyper focus on, you know, I, and, you know, all respect to Christine Blasey Ford and uh, uh, Deborah Ramirez. Right. Those yes, that's who I was, I was um, thinking of before, uh, you know, and, and you know, you know, let's 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 hear them out, of course. But like I, his his behavior at that hearing was disqualifying alone. I don't need I don't need to see anything else. I don't know why we have to focus on the minutia of stories that are secondhand and thirdhand. And maybe he did. And I believe he probably did those things but it it again like moving the goalposts focusing on this one thing making it all about this one issue and it's like his demeanor when he said like what reap the whirlwind and uh the clintons and like i'm like who is this guy like he, he can't be on the supreme court like just look at him like, like yeah he's, he's everything he's saying is ridiculous and and you know it doesn't it it does matter it it matters whether or not he the, we believe these women and hear them out I get that. I'm not saying that, you know, we should not listen to them, but like w making it focused all on that 
is is a mistake because he's just he shouldn't he doesn't have the demeanor to be on the court. <laughs> no, I mean he doesn't have the demeanor. He has very very likely committed multiple acts of sexual assault. And then there are other stories about him that were just dropped, like his finances. He had two hundred thousand dollars of debt in baseball tickets. Weirdly enough, Paul Manafort also had two hundred thousand dollars in debt from baseball tickets. I'm like maybe guys, this isn't really about baseball tickets. Like maybe there's some seedy stuff going on with these little Republican operatives. You know, he had that. There's this strange situation with Kennedy retiring. You know, Justice Kennedy's son was Trump's uh, personal banker at Deutsche Bank, which is the leading bank for Russian money laundering. Like maybe some money came out of there. There are all these stories related to Kavanaugh, things that should have been investigated in great detail before uh, his confirmation hearings began. And they had months and months to do this. Uh, No one really did. I'm not saying it was easy and people just didn't decide to do it. I'm sure many people tried and just, you know, ran into blocks because they've been trying to cover this up. But there are so many questions about his eligibility and suitability for that role. Um, But it was obvious why they wanted him. And they wanted him because he had promised that he would never indict the president of the United States. You know, in this case, Trump. He was just there to do Trump's bidding, to be his lackey. And that was the moment. Honestly, I felt the deepest despair uh, since Trump was elected because, you know, when a, when a society, a government is moving from a democracy to an authoritarian state, the biggest bulwark, you know, the thing that protects the democracy the most is the judiciary. And so what they always try to do is capture that. You know, first they take the executive branch, then the legislature, and that happened. And then they go after judges and they pack the courts and they pack, of course, they try to pack the highest courts. And they've done it. They have packed the Supreme Court with enough Trump lackeys uh, to get whatever kind of ruling they want. And uh, that's very frightening because no matter what comes next, like say by some miracle Trump is impeached and he's gone, we're still left with that. We're left with Kavanaugh, you know, who should not be there on the court. We're left with all these lower courts uh, stacked with Trump appointees, you know, GOP lackeys, compromised individuals who are just not going to rule according to law, but rule according to personality, politics and, uh, you know, promises and just unethical people. Uh, and that's that's a major problem. And another reason why I didn't understand why the Democrats wouldn't move faster, because they, of all people, should understand why that's a crisis, you know. Yeah. And, you know, it's just speaking of Supreme Court judges, I just every time I read anything about if I see Ruth Bader Ginsburg's name trending anywhere, <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't yeah. hear anything about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Less, no good. No news is good news. <laughs> it's just it's less, absolutely less. crazy how much we have to fear that. Like this whole system needs to be overturned. Like no one should be a judge, you know, into their like 80s. Although I saw an interesting interview with her where they're like, why didn't you quit? during Obama's term. And she's like, because Mitch McConnell would have blocked my replacement. And I'm thinking that's true. And that's actually a, a good reason in some sense. But also, wow, are we so screwed up that this is just sort of taken as something that happens and not as like an outrage? It's like, oh, you know, Mitch McConnell blocking the democratic process. I mean, that should be a really big deal. It should have been a really big deal, uh, you know, the first time that he did it. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I I just I wish there was more um, willingness to be on the offense here, you know, from the Democratic side, because offense, honestly, is defense when your opponent is constantly doing dirty tricks to run you down. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why I like uh, Mayor Pete's uh, thing about packing the court, you know, spreading the Supreme Court out. Yeah, let's do it. Why not? (laughs) I'm ready. I was glad when he came out with that. I mean, 
I'm mixed on him as a candidate. Like, what do you think? Because he's in Indiana and you're in Indiana. Is, is yeah. he like, what's his reputation like there? I don't, I think his biggest problem, and I think it's becoming more apparent over time, is that I don't think anyone of color really likes him at all. Yeah. And, you know, I think he's had a lot of problems in that area that a lot of his supporters aren't ready to acknowledge. And I think he's a, he's obviously very educated, very quick. Uh, he, he can, I, I really appreciate that he can challenge Trump on, well, you can challenge Pence, especially on the religion thing. I would love to see him, uh, go toe to toe. Uh, if he was the vice presidential candidate with Pence, if that, if that were to occur, that would be a fun debate. Mm -hmm. He's also from Indiana and it would really be an Indiana throwdown. Oh uh, yeah. For, for, so very mild mannered, but with like horrible <laughs> contempt raging underneath the little smiles and niceties. <laughs> yeah. The Midwest nice would, would, yeah, it would disguise some things, but, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I just don't, I think he has a real problem there and I really don't think he's going to make it all the way. Uh, but I, I do know uh, I there's uh, somebody in the parking lot outside my apartment here who has a but uh, you know, and if you look at the heat map of his donations, it's pretty squarely on Indiana. But, <laughs> right, right. Because uh, uh, at first uh, I was kind of excited by him. I was like, oh, there's this guy like around my age. He's from the Midwest. Right. He's, you know, sort of speaking my language because he's talking about these big structural changes, like expanding the Supreme Court, getting rid of the Electoral College. Yeah. And then it's yeah. like he turned into like Joe Biden Jr. And I was like, all right, yeah, not so much. And then I just, you know, Warren kept coming out with plan after plan after plan. And I like, didn't expect to like anybody that much, but I just got full on board the Warren train and I haven't gotten off. Um, but yeah, you know, hopefully he'll, I don't know, develop over time and become more attenuated to yeah. these other issues because he is intelligent and that's a good thing. No, I think in, you know, a couple of years, I think he could be a formidable uh, candidate. I, you know, it feels weird as somebody like only like a year younger than him to be saying that. But right. you know, oh, I think I think super weird. <laughs> yeah, given time to grow, I think he could really uh, turn into something. But yeah, yeah. No, I think people generally like him. But yeah, I think he does have a problem with that uh, officer involved shooting that he's had to deal with. And, right. and there's other things with the with the black police chief that uh i'm i'm not entirely sure what happened there but he doesn't have yeah you know, i think i think he, he a lot of his appeal is what other people think other people that we, we what people think other people think of him like they're like yes. oh man he really like gets to these republicans or conservative or moderate people who might not otherwise vote for a democrat but he can speak to them because he's a veteran that's another thing i like about him is that he can challenge trump on the bone spurs thing and that's cool but uh but yeah it's like it's like they're like yeah i just i in that that honestly that's kind of the, what i thought i was like yeah i'd like to see uh what, what are you gonna say to that yeah he's yeah he's gay yeah he's young so what he's a he's a veteran he speaks what seven languages what do you what, what's the problem here <laughs> yeah no i mean it was interesting until you know as time went on i felt like he was kind of micromanaged by his campaign staff which seems to be a very sort of conventional big donor democrat campaign staff and it's sort of like i don't know it, it sucked away the things i i liked about him but yeah you know he is interesting and good on all of those points. And, you know, I mean, honestly, though, like the whole slate, I guess with the exception of Tulsi Gabbard and Mary yeah, Williams, yeah. Williamson mm -hmm. um, are, are pretty, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there are ones I like more than others, but there, there's nothing approaching, even with those two, there's nothing approaching Trump. I mean, there's just nothing even close. And so, you know, I, I think it's going to be either Warren, Biden, Bernie, yeah, yeah. maybe Harris, if she comes in from the back, but probably one of those three. I mean, it, it's just 
vast improvement. <laughs> Even if it's one of the ones I don't like, like I don't like Biden very much, but yeah. Um, yeah. it still would be a vast improvement. Yeah, I've been, uh, my uh, friend Jonathan and I have been watching the debates and, and, and talking about them on the podcast, and we just keep coming back to a Tulsi Gabbard. Which she, she just repeats these uh, Kremlin talking points all the yes. time. And I'm yeah, like, I'm what is going worried. on there? She's Why don't like... people notice this? Like, she's like, there's going to be a nuclear war and we're at the most. Pre-. It was like, whoa, slow down, lady. Where you... That's like a Russian like propaganda thing you're talking about there. What is you talking about? <laughs> I mean, there, may, there may well be a nuclear war, but it's like the people whose ass she's kissing are going to be the ones who drop that bomb. I mean, yeah. Trump is working with the Kremlin. He's like the Kremlin's partner. And I think they would very much like to, you know, dually wield nuclear weapons to intimidate other countries and terrify them. I mean, because Trump has said so. I mean, that's in, in Putin has said so. That is where my uh, brilliant analysis comes from, is they literally confess on these plans. But yeah, she's just a, a dictator sycophant. You know, she does it with Assad. She does it with yes. Putin. Um, yes. I'm slightly worried she's going to, like, pull a Jill Stein and do some kind of third-party thing. And the thing is, is, you know, she's not wrong in that we need an end to forever wars and we need to stop jumping into, you know, other countries with drones and with violence. I mean, she's absolutely correct on that. And I think the other Democratic candidates on the whole are saying pretty much the same thing. But it's like you don't need to, like, kiss the ass of brutal dictators and ignore human rights to achieve that goal. You just don't. You know, you need to strike a balance. And that should be obvious. And that's why she's so strange in that respect. And I don't quite know what she's up to, if she just has a major, major blind spot or if it's something more nefarious than that. Well, the one the one uh, person that keeps coming back who I would, would like to see on a uh, stage with with Trump, uh, if it comes to that, is Kamala Harris, because I really like that she she knows how to, like, press the case. Obviously, we've seen her uh, in those Senate hearings. Uh, and you know, I feel like that would be a useful tool because she she really knows how to like drill down on a point. Uh, Joe ask Joe Biden, right? But, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I would like to see that turned on the right uh, targets. You know what I mean? Like that that kind of prosecutorial thing. Uh, what do you think of her? Yeah, well, I think she's great in the hearings. She's been very good, um, you know, at questioning people. I remember her sessions in particular. Like, she's often good um, spontaneously. You know, her her moment with Biden, you know, is fairly spontaneous. Her moment, her best moments at other debates seem to kind of come out of nowhere. I, you know, that said, she has this kind of like man, not manufactured, like cautious way of being a politician that I feel like she's, she's nervous. I mean, maybe it's like she's had lifelong ambitions and then all of a sudden she's plopped into this authoritarian hellscape, you know, with the transnational crime syndicate and is like, well, this isn't what I signed up for. Like, I'm not sure she, she fully grasps um, the level of, you know, offense and level of change that needs to be done uh, to really wipe these guys out. Like, I think she's a tough debater. I don't know if she's as tough in practice as she is as a debater. I mean, my, I'm more confident in her than I certainly am in Biden and in others. Um, but I still think, you know, Warren has the, the sort of best big picture outlook on this. And it's going to come less down to debates than kind of the whole thing, like media appearances, debates, policy plans, like everything and how Trump, you know, reacts. But yeah, Trump will have trouble, I think, 
demonizing her, I think, more than uh, more than the others. He actually hasn't taken too much of a swipe at her from what I see. But the other thing is, is that it shouldn't matter what Trump thinks of anybody because he's a pathological liar and a sociopath. And so, like, if he dislikes somebody, that's usually a point in their favor, um, you know, which is something he does to create fake feuds with uh, with individuals whose material he wants you to read, by the way. <laughs> like the New York Times, but um, but you know we'll, we'll see. She, she's all right. She's not my not my favorite, but I'm not going to complain if she's the nominee either. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, it doesn't take much to yeah. <laughs> convince me to to vote for generic candidate X at this point. Oh yeah, so. <laughs> I mean that's the thing. As, as pissed as I am at the Democrats, and I'm not sure I've ever been this angry at them. Um, maybe, maybe during the Iraq war I was, but you know, I, I'm very mad. There's no excuse now, at least back then people were traumatized by nine 11, right. not thinking clearly. Like if you're traumatized by Trump, you actually can go and like, you know, untraumatize yourself and do something. So I have no sympathy for that. Um, nonetheless, people should still vote for the democratic candidates. They should do it locally. They should do it nationally because this is a, you know, a party that is dominated by a transnational crime syndicate and is dirty to the core and is not going to serve the public and people seem to forget that you know that the debt the um government is supposed to serve us our representatives serve us and one thing that's driving me crazy is this sort of passive like supplicant attitude that i see displayed toward any official that's not completely bereft of ethics like if you know pelosi hands people a crumb everyone is like oh thank her thank her you know post the memes worshiping her if like the whistleblower after doing nothing for two years i mean maybe he, this person did do stuff and i'm just i don't know the full story so maybe i shouldn't you don't know this. maybe they wrote that op-ed too we don't know that <laughs> i mean yeah i have no idea but you know there, there are plenty of people surrounding the trump administration could have spoken out a long time ago and alerted us to all of this and, and confirmed our worst suspicions and they didn't do it and whenever one of them does it's like oh hero and they do this with like the never trump republicans it's like wow you weren't wildly racist and lying like wow you're so amazing and it's just it's the standard for a behavior has plummeted so much and i think it's because people are so afraid that if they see even a glimmer of humanity in somebody they just like crumble to the ground and and what worries me is that this spills over into impeachment where they're like you know what if we just get him on the ukraine thing then he's impeached and that's good enough and i'm like no it's really not like you deserve better than that like you citizen of america deserves so much better than that like you deserve to know everything bad that your government has done and you deserve to get all the criminals out of office because they're actively hurting you and it's like watching this abuser dynamic play out over and over um it's sad you know it kind of breaks my heart because it's how people become psychologically adjusted uh to authoritarianism they begin to accept it and they accept things that they never would have before just because the alternatives are so much worse. But that's not a healthy way uh, to exist as a, a citizen in a, in a free society. Yeah. yeah. And it's like when Nancy Pelosi, like, gives, like, a sarcastic clap, I'm supposed to, like, be excited or something. And I'm like, I just, <laughs> I can't get worked up over this. Yeah, like, I need to see a little bit sarcastic. more. sarcastic. Like, right. that was a real clap i mean that was something that set off alarm bells in my head not even because it was a real clap or whatever i mean she's very old school she's an institutionalist she's gonna clap sure, for the sure. president even if it's trump which is lame and she shouldn't clap for him but all these people who are reading so much into it like reading things into her jewelry and, and i'm like no no 
she's she's not actually doing that. Like it, it would be cool if she was, but she's not. And um, you know, it's not even important. It's not important how she claps at him or what she wears. It's important what kind of policies she tries to pass and what kind of accountability she tries to enforce. And she's not doing those things. And that's the actual problem we have here. You know, what she did much more was target people like Ilhan Omar, you know, and, and when that's the priority over targeting Trump. Uh, I grow uh, concerned. But yeah, people really, they wanted to see something in her that I just, I don't think is there. Um, and it is, it's a part of this broader symptom. I think they, you know, they did the same thing for Mueller. It's not unique to Pelosi in any way. They want a savior. They want somebody to save them from this. And I just don't think that that is going to happen. I think there will be good people, you know, who will do the right thing or at least try to do the right thing. But it's not going to be like one person sweep, swoops in and, and saves the country. That's just not how anything ever plays out. And it's not going to be the case here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, uh, this, this civil war talk is just so dangerous. And I think that's impeachable on its on its face, too. And I, I don't know why the Democrats aren't jumping on that more and making everyone, every Republican answer for that, because that's it's game over if that's if that's all we're talking about just open violence in the streets if this guy gets impeached he can't be held accountable like that's what yes. him and giuliani are saying at this point right i mean that's that's their line you can't you know the stock markets will tank and and there will be civil war it's like okay and they said this again like they said that in 2016 like oh, roger stone came yeah. out and said there will be a bloodbath if trump loses and they promised you know militia violence and street violence they promised global instability is the exact same playbook and I don't know why they don't jump on that more just as like Trump is threatening your safety. Like he's threatening your safety as an ordinary American who no matter who you voted for, odds are you don't want to get swept up in this. And sometimes I feel like the Democrats have this weird idea that like all the people who voted for Trump, like all like 60 million or whatever, are all going to like come out, you know, with their assault rifles and like their tanks or whatever they think they have and like go, you know, hog wild. It's really not the case. I mean, the problem is it doesn't take a large number of people to cause an incredible amount of damage. Like we see that every time a mass shooting happens. But I think the number of people who are like, yay, Civil War II is really small, you know, even among Trump's base. There are plenty of people that voted for Trump that, you know, they hate liberals. They hate the Democrats. They want Trump to stay in office. They think this whole thing is bullshit. But I don't think that necessarily translates into I'm going to go out and kill people or I'm going to go and join another war. Like that's that's a very big leap. And it's weird to me. Um, I sometimes say because our you know, political commentators, they come from the coasts. And they think that, like, everyone who lives in regions like we live is, like, you know, constantly, like, I don't know, like, Civil War reenactors or I, I don't know what they think they're like. But, but you know, like, we're, we're just regular people, you know, like, going to the supermarket, going to Target, not actually, like, prepping our militias. And, and I don't think they grasp that. That, like, of course, there are people that are like that, but they're all over the country. They're, like, not unique to the, quote, red states. Like, you'll find some, like, militia armed up freak, like, everywhere you go. You know, every state's got at least one. And so I don't know. They, they don't seem to get that they're probably not going to alienate people by condemning a call to violence because most people don't want violence. Maybe they want conflict, but they don't want like innocent people dead. I, I mean, maybe no, no one's ever accused me of being too optimistic about the state of human nature. But I honestly think that's true, even from just, you know, interviewing and talking to so many Trump voters in Missouri and Illinois. 
uh, they're not really into this idea. You know, they just, they just want like, uh, evangelicals and guns and abortion stuff most of the time and aren't really wrapped up in this whole, you know, it's a coup thing. So we'll see though. Lots of people can be persuaded. So maybe, I don't know. At the same time, if people can be persuaded, the Democrats should be upfront in directing the narrative. So I don't know. Yeah, like I was driving in Michigan a couple weeks ago and, uh, you know, there was this, this uh, house I passed with a huge QAnon billboard on, painted on the side of their house. And I'm like, you, that guy's you don't need to worry about that guy. He's he's a lost voter to you. Don't don't worry about trying to please him, uh, moderates or Democrats. You know what I mean? Like they keep trying to be like, how do we win over? Oh, God. Here? It's like, don't yeah, worry about that. Just just the people. So there's people that already like you that would that would definitely vote for you. Just. Listen to them. What do they have to say? And try to do what they want, and they'll come out for you more. You don't need to worry about what that guy's talking about. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if they just stuck to their principles, like, here is who I really am. Here is what I stand for. Here is what I will do to you. Not do to you. Do for you. Um, <laughs> I'm like, it's still A little more aggressive. Uh, you know, like, if, if I'm in office, uh, you know, here is my plan. If they're honest about that, and, on, and if they're honest about the fact that so many of our institutions are broken, that people are suffering, that people are in pain. I think that that goes a long way because that was part of Trump's message that actually resonated. Like you had, at least in the beginning, I think she kind of learned from Bernie to not do this. Clinton was like, look at how successful the Obama years were. Look at how good the economy is. Like, I'll keep this going. And everybody was like, hell no. Like, I can't pay my bills. I haven't had a steady job in 10 years. Like, my health care costs are through the roof. My government, my state government is crazy. You know, all these kind of things that they just, the DNC seemed kind of oblivious about. And I don't think they are anymore. I think they've definitely learned uh, that people have been feeling hard times. Um, If you're just honest about that, I think that goes a long way. And I definitely don't think the goal should ever be like, let's win over the Trump voters. It should just be like, let's be the best candidate for the American people, broadly speaking, possible. And certainly, you know, don't ignore the needs of non-white voters, of immigrant voters, of all the voters who Trump targets, because they've been targeted. And, you know, they need, you know, if anything, more attention, because they've been the targets of horrible actual policies that have been implemented and that need to be reversed. Things like, you know, the Muslim ban, or things like the attacks on migrants. I mean, that's something that should be brought up. Um, but yeah, and honestly, even with QAnon people, I don't think all of them are lost. I mean, one thing I've been kind of following that. And one thing that's very interesting to me about QAnon, whoever is behind it knows what they're doing, because they mix in basically open, horrifying secrets, stuff like the Jeffrey Epstein case, which was something I've been following for years, just waiting, like, are they ever going to arrest this guy? This is a pedophile sex trafficking operation that's also like a blackmail an espionage operation and is probably tied to Trump. I mean, it is because Trump uh, sure, was accused sure. of raping a uh, 13 year old procured by Epstein's operation. Like, are they ever going to do anything about this? And one of the few places I saw this consistently discussed, but completely without the Trump element, was QAnon. You know, they knew about uh, the Maxwell family. You know, they knew about these espionage ties. And I was like, you know, people are trusting in QAnon because they are talking about stuff like that. They're talking about, like, the Sackler family. That's another case that comes up. But then it's mixed with all this bullshit. It's mixed with all of this ludicrous, you know, trust the plan. It's kind of like how people were with Mueller, honestly. (laughs) You know, like, trust the plan. Yeah, and Trump is going to see it. 
Yeah, like Trump, Trump is, you know, draining the deep state. It's all like Trump is the secret hero and everything he's doing that seems insane must have some, some internal logic. And so some people, I think, following QAnon are just kind of scared and they're seeing really disgusting people in politics, like pedophiles and rapists and traffickers and drug dealers, you know, like at the highest level of government. They're totally correct about that. I mean, I'm sorry, like they're right and the institutionalists are wrong. Unfortunately, at the same time, they're saying things like JFK Jr has risen from the dead in his Area 51 UFO and is going to, like, fix the election process. So, you know, you can't, you can't like, uh, they've managed to, to, you know, basically mush all of this together, which honestly I think helps, um, like, if I come out and I start saying Jeffrey Epstein is linked to international intelligence operations, before he was arrested, before he died, people thought I was nuts. And then when he was arrested and he, you know, allegedly died, um, you know, then people understood what I was talking about. But before that, they'd say to me, you sound like QAnon. I heard that on QAnon and it was automatically discredited because it was associated with that. And I think that that is something that the Trump people and the who I do think are the QAnon people have been doing to kind of kill these giant, really scandalous, really horrifying stories, nip them in the bud by making them seem very like Alex Jones wacko land territory, you know? Well, and it's like you couldn't with the Epstein thing. You couldn't design a more perfect conspiracy uh, story. The, the 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 cameras off, and the guards fell asleep, and one of them wasn't even a guard, and his neck was broken, and mm-hmm. he had tried to commit suicide days before, and you know all these things. You know, and it's like, come on, what what do you expect well, people to do? The backstory to that is so awful. Like, I have a new book coming out in April. It's called Hiding in Plain Sight, and so I turn in, you know, basically my my final first draft of it in June. And there's a whole chapter about Epstein. And I think my editor is kind of like, what the hell is this? Because, you know, the Miami Herald and Julie Brown at that paper had been covering it, but mostly was kind of under the radar. And I had a lot of stuff about connections to, um, you know, an international mafia, you know, connected to the Kremlin. I think she thought it was a little out there. Then he gets arrested and she's like, okay, whoa, you know, this is a big deal. Then he quote unquote dies or commits suicide. Um, he obviously did not commit suicide. He was likely murdered. Um, I, I don't, I have other theories. I'm not going to share them for fear. I will be labeled a QAnon type. But, you know, obviously this is, this is not normal. Like everything, as you just listed, uh, went wrong in this particular case and made him, um, you know, it's all very suspect. And then you have Bill Barr saying, oh, don't worry. I'll look into it. It's like, mm-hmm, sure you will, um, but not in the way we want you to. And so, yeah, that's a really big story. Another thing that was disturbing about that to me is that after the Epstein story dropped, suddenly all of these publications were like, oh, guess what? I've got like a decade worth of horrible Epstein things. Like we find out about MIT Media Lab. We find out about all these other people who had been uh, paid off by him. And I'm like, okay, so where were you all these years that, uh, you know, underage victims were suing him? Like, where were you to stand up against this? Why were you taking money from a pedophile, rapist, sex trafficker, Alan Dershowitz? Like, what's wrong with all of you? Uh, and that's depressing to see, because I do feel like it's part of this the same system, the one that produced Kavanaugh and, and Barr and all these other terrible people. Um, it's just a system of elite criminality, and they get away with it over and over and over for decades, unless somebody really uh, clamps down and stops it. And I, I hope that that's what happens, but uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I sort of feel like I'm like among few who are very loud about this, um, and I know why, because you know we're all threatened all the time, but. Uh, nonetheless, it's it's not my job. It's the job of people who actually have the power to do something, and hopefully they'll rise up. Mm-hmm. 
But tell me about Guns N' Roses. <laughs> Guns N' Roses was awesome. I can, see, I cannot believe I've seen them twice. Like, yeah. I think like, one of the first times I talked to you, I was about to see them for, like, the first time ever because, mm-hmm. you know, for most of my life, they'd been broken up. Um, I went to Louder in Life, so I drove through state because I drove to Kentucky. I saw a whole bunch of bands. I saw Suicidal Tendencies, and Mark Muir should be, like, directing the House Democrats on impeachment because he has, like, all the right tips. Uh, I saw Andrew WK, and I partied hard. And, um, oh, and I saw this band called Dirty Honey. They were great. They're, like, Guns N' Roses Jr. I love them. I love their EP. So I was excited to see them. But the highlight, of course, was Guns N' Roses. There was, like, I don't know, 75,000 people. It was, like, wild. They did a great set. They covered Wichita Lineman, of all things, which was just, like, I mean, me cry i was so happy to see them even though it was like 10 billion degrees uh, out in the heat and you know it was it was awesome i want to just keep seeing them again and i also found out that like duff has read my book the view from flyover country and his solo album was partly inspired by it and that has like blown my mind because that's beyond any expectation like 12 year old me for example could have ever had so it's been a it's been a good year guns and roses wise um everything else <laughs> not so much so. right <laughs> me and are doing great but we're all yeah, kind of struggling yeah. otherwise <laughs> part of my life which granted is a very big part of my life has never been so good but everything else kind of you know plummeting uh, <laughs> in, in the background so well, great. Well, hey, uh, thanks for taking so much time to talk with me, and uh, hopefully we'll have uh, more uh, fun things to talk about uh, after uh, Trump is out of office, hopefully soon. But e- either way, we'll talk. <laughs> but, uh, All right. Good to talk to you. Yeah, All right. have a good night. Bye. You too.
Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.